2: Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Each episode will feature a new guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. Right now, we're really excited to be speaking with our guest Tim Urban. Tim has become one of the internet's most popular writers, with wry stick figure illustrations and occasionally epic prose on everything from crap procrastination to artificial intelligence. Urban's blog Wait But Why has garnered millions of unique page views, thousands of patrons, and famous fans like Elon Musk, who he's actually written about. Fast Company has said that quote Wait But Why has captured a level of reader engagement that even the new media giants would be envious of. Hey, man, thanks for being on the show today.
3: yeah, thanks for having me on. Did you write that bio? No, I did not. actually, I think that was written by the Ted people they are good it was It was way too uh they are fans- good at that yeah, they are
2: good at that. I feel like they're professionals at that
3: yeah, it was like it was very exciting seeing a a professional bio writer try <laughs> to explain what you do,
2: yeah, exactly. But it well deserved. I'm a huge fan. I would use the word fan. I, I very rarely use that word, by the way.
3: But I well, would say, well, thank you.
2: Yeah, I'm a fan of your thinking and your blog. And I wanted to start with like understanding a little more who Tim Urban is. I'm not going to like psychoanalyze you. Don't worry. But yeah,
3: no, no, that's fine. I could use <laughs> some therapy. <laughs> yeah, I'm um, from Boston, Boston area, and I um, basically spent most of my twenties after college, kind of like doing five different things at once. And I had, you know, I wanted, you know, I had all these things I wanted to do. And I kind of made the mistake of, I think, kind of spreading myself like pretty thin. And that was, I think, a frustrating experience. So, you know, three, four years ago, I decided to take one of those things I had been doing, blogging, and try to do that, you know, full time with all my attention. And so that's how Y started. And that's what I've been doing ever since. Yeah. You were a government major. Is that right? In college? Yes yeah yeah I was a government major.
2: so there was a time when you were potentially thinking about getting into politics, or
3: definitely not okay. um I think if I had ever had an interest in anything like that, it would have been like that probably would have been before the age of about eighteen. Once I was in college, I decided I wanted to go and do you know something in creative music or writing and maybe something in entrepreneur entrepreneurial land, but I definitely didn't want to go into. Politics. I majored in government because it was. I had to decide my major it was freshman year, and I had no idea what I wanted to learn. And at the time, I, if I could go back, I would have said, "Look, this is like my opportunity to learn here, and I have this great opportunity to dive into something. Right. What do I really care about?" And I probably would have majored in in something with music or, or history, something I was really interested in, and or you know, some kind of delicious science topic, astronomy or something. But at the time, I just did what seemed broad, and you know, I could do a million things under government, so I, I I did that kind of you know didn't really have the confidence to to just trust my instinct there at the time. So I, I uh, yeah, it's, I actually learned a lot because you can do a bunch of broad things, but but political science, political theory is incredibly boring. So it was th- those classes, which was a lot of them, were, were bored me after the first kind of basic one, which was interesting. But then you know you do a lot of other things, and it was okay. Man, so
2: what instrument do you play? I play the piano. Oh,
3: wow. I moved to LA after college to to write movie scores. So I was using the piano, but I was writing for all kinds of instruments, you know,
2: strings and everything else you have to write for. Yeah. I mean, I get from your writing that you're voraciously curious about everything. Yes, definitely. Except maybe political theory. No, that's not true. You you finally wrote that, are we going to be okay post-
3: yeah, I'm actually in the middle right now of about a, what would be a 200-page book on, but it's going to be a blog post. But it's going to be a very long one on a, a lot of political topics. Actually, unfortunately. Well, do you think we're going to be okay? Yeah, I think we're going to be okay. I think it's actually like a 90% that we're going to be okay. I think normally it would be like more like 99, and I think that 90% includes a bunch of bad things, a bunch of bad policies, or a bunch of kind of upsetting moments in the decade. But in twenty, thirty years, you know, you won't look back on this as like the dark period of American history. It'll be like another, you know, another tumultuous period in American history. We've had a bunch of those. That's the 90 percent. The 10 percent, you know, is something more more upsetting, like a big, big war or a big, big like upsetting, you know, attack on us or something completely unrelated to um, Trump and his administration. And just, you know, something with some upsetting thing with technology or you know, terrorism and technology or something, you know, there's something that are, are very, you know, there's that 10% that I would say, you know, actually, we really don't know if we're going to be okay. But the other 90% is the kind of the old man saying, Oh, it's always been fine in the past. It'll always, you know, it'll be fine now too. Yeah. So that's what I, that's kind of how I would break it down. Well,
2: no, I appreciate that. I'll, I'll keep my fingers crossed. A lot of your writing tends to have these deep existential themes, it seems like you find it useful in your thinking to take the very long-term approach, not to, this is just my read from reading multiple of your articles, as opposed to just, you know, freaking out in the moment. You sort of like to like stretch the perspective out as, as far as possible, even to infinity in one of your posts.
3: Or Is that accurate? Yeah, I think, I mean, I just think that if you, look, if if you compare... Someone in 1877 writing about that decade, or writing about you know whatever, and what they think the relevance is, and, and then you take someone today writing about that same decade. We're gonna be better at it because we can see the whole picture. We can see the zoomed out view. When you zoom out, you can always see what's going on a lot better. If you want to understand, I was trying to figure out how they made maps back in the 1500s, and they're just sailing around coastlines. Basically, they're just on a boat and the coastline just looks so big and amorphous from when you're next to it. How can you possibly like sketch out a real picture of what the whole thing looks like? And if you can just take a satellite picture, it would be a lot easier. So I'm always trying to take a satellite picture, even though the challenge is the things you're often taking a picture of, you aren't on the satellite view, you're next to the coast, which is with your own psychology and things that happen in your life. You know, you, the perspective that you'll have in 20 years, you don't have that right now, but you want to still try to imagine what that perspective will be. So I'm always trying to like imagine what this looks like from above and what this would looks like from someone in the future looking back in history or what this would look like for me looking back on my life, etc. You
2: know, I certainly I try to do that too in my own life. And I think that's why I resonate a lot with your writing, but I find, and I don't know, I want to know if this happens with you at all in your, in your daily life. Like you still have to live life. I mean, you you write it, you write about it at this higher level and you can kind of like in those moments kind of look down and, or take this perspective. But You also have to live your life on a day-to-day basis. And I find that if I start in my day-to-day life thinking too much about like, you know, like, like oh really, what's the point? I mean, of this moment, like, like it's like if, if I'm like, falling in love, it's like, yeah, well, okay, well, you know, all this is going to be gone. Like if you start thinking too much about that, if you like, what would it be like to walk around every day, every second of your life, taking kind of like this very, very like long-term
3: existential perspective, would that be conducive to well-being? Well, it depends. I think what, ha- I think it's actually kind of funny where you like, as you zoom out, you go on a roller coaster. So it, I don't think it's a good place to be as well. I, I look, I Actually, I, th- I think there's an argument for every level. So being completely zoomed in, Sometimes that's a very present place to be. And sometimes that's a very peaceful place to be. Don't have to think about anything. Kids are always Zoomed in. You know, it's really nice being seven. You're just unbelievably excited that it's Friday and you get to go to a movie with your friend. And, you know, all these like, you know, you're just so incredibly excited about like Friday night, sleepover with this other seven-year-old. like. And so that that's like, there's something blissful about that. It's very hard for adults to get there. So I think if we can actually be there, that's a nice place to be a lot of the time. I don't think adults are very good at that. I think we are at least one big notch zoomed out from that at all times as adults. And I don't think that's a very happy place to be because you don't have the bliss of being totally present, but you don't have the the big picture really either. And so you sweat the small stuff a lot. And I think then when you go another level out, you can get to a wiser place of like, you know, the don't sweat the small stuff level where it's like, you know, this is all part of life. It's okay. And you know, it's it's all going to be fine. And we just try to Focus on what matters in life, your relationship, and you know, the things you really like to do and taking care of your health and let me just enjoy yourself. That's a very wise place to be. But then you go to the level beyond that, and like you said, you're like, Oh my God, none of this really matters. It's all we're all gonna die. It's all this is this is all gonna disappear. And then you get to like an upsetting place. But then I think you, you can go even one level more zoomed out to like the Buddhist place, which is a hard place to get to, you know, to really and that's the place where you're like, well, none of even that doesn't matter. Death is just an object of my consciousness. It's just the fear of death is an object of my consciousness. Death itself isn't scary. And I'm just a bunch of vibrating atoms in this energy field that we live in. You know, so you can keep going. I think the Buddhist Buddhism is the highest zoom out you can get to, I think. And that to me is a very peaceful place, too, in the times when I can actually feel that. It is absolutely. And I don't know. Do you meditate at all? I do sometimes, and then I'm obsessed with it. And then I'm like, I'm going to do this every day. Yeah, This is obviously a great, and then I do it the next day. I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. And then I, and then I don't do it for 42 days. After, so. Is it
2: in general how you live your life? Because I, I can totally relate to that.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a lot of that going on. There's a lot of, I get in a real honeymoon phase with something. I'm sure I'm going to do it forever. And then I don't, even though it really was a good thing. Even though it really was making me... Um, Happy to do it. It's just hard for me to build new habits and break old ones. Very, very hard. But that, I've done it. It's yeah. hard. That
2: also makes your career perfect. You're perfectly suited to what you do because you can get these bursts of inspiration, put your all into it, write a post, get it out there, and millions of people will read it, and then you can move on to another topic.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Blogging works for me in that regard nicely. In that, uh, well, it, it also the point is, it's not that I don't like committing to something. It's just that I'm not good at committing to something. And so it's not just that blogging and switching topics is good, because that is, I do like that component. But it's also just having readers, having an expectation that I'm going to be writing allows me to have to quit blogging in general. You know, I mean, it's like, if there were no readers, and I were just sitting here working on a on a huge epic book, and this everything I'd written for Wait But Why was all part of this book that was going to come out. I don't know if I would have written as much as I have in the last three years. I might I might've stopped after a month, you know? And so that's another reason that's good for me.
2: Oh, wait, that's really interesting. Is it because of the feedback process, the like the sort of immediate gratification of getting a thousand comments and shares and things?
3: No, I mean, that's, that's very motivating, but it's the, it's that there's external pressure. There's some other factor. Oh, I see. That, as opposed to it's just, As opposed to, you know, just coming from within. So it's not that there's not internal motivation. I'm incredibly internally motivated, but I'm not internally disciplined. So the external kind of pressure is what pushes me to be disciplined, which is the thing I lack.
2: Well, what is the external pressure there? So how is it the peoples are are expecting a new
3: post? Is that it? Yeah, it's that it. Well, it's also that, well, you know, I've decided this is now my job. So I, A, have a business partner who okay. is expecting me to be doing this. B, I have readers that start emailing me when I haven't written in too long, which currently is is what's happening. Okay. Once it's my thing, then friends and family are saying, well, where's your next post? What's going on? You know, and it's you, I can't just hide <laughs> from it. I can't just procrastinate for a year and then come back to writing. I can't do that. Everyone will just be asked what the hell I'm doing. And as a blogger, you never feel secure. You have, you know, attention is a very, very, very hard thing to get. And when you have some, you're always assuming and worry that it's just gonna disappear. That people are gonna get sick of you. So and then you have to go do something else. So there's a lot of pressure on a blogger to stay productive and that creates yeah, that, that creates that helps you you discipline yourself.
2: Yeah, it seems like your kind of stresses are very aligned with the stresses of those for like freelance journalists, for instance. There's that Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
3: But well there's but, also some yeah. guilt aspect in that, you know, you really love your readers and your, and your blogger because, you know, they're the people who really get what you're doing and like it and they agree with you on a lot of the topics. So and when those people are checking the site and I've been there, I've, I know what it's like to check something that you really like and just waiting and there's nothing and it's just disappointing. And eventually you get kind of angry and you just say, screw it. And you really don't want that to happen to them. You really don't want to let them down. So there's a lot of factors.
2: Tim, yeah, I think there's, so it goes in both directions. It's such a, you've hit a magic spot of this balancing act. There's also, if you post too much, you kind of, some of the quality gets diluted potentially. It's kind of, I feel like you've kind of mastered the art of minimalism in a way. And I bet it's not minimalism on your side. Like you work so hard. Like there's so much production going on on your end that we don't see. But, you know, there's something I think Kind of beautiful about like my life is comprised around doing like, like so how often do you
3: post, for instance? Like once a month or something? Well, that depends on okay. the year you're asking me. So 2014, I posted about once a week. Once 2015, a week. posted about once every two or three weeks. 2016, I posted even less, but the things got longer. So exactly. I'm, uh, right, and like right now, it's been three months since I posted something new, but the thing I'm working on is going to be huge. As I said, like, it would be about a 200 page illustrated book if I made it a book. Exactly. So, Oh, yeah, I've been drifting in this direction of more thorough and fewer posts. I'm not sure I like that. I think there's something to it. I think sometimes that's the right move. But I do miss, and I think a lot of readers miss also, just a a good 2,500-word weekly post can be really great. Just one crack at one idea. You don't have to get that deep into it, and then you move on. There's something really fun about that, and I miss that a little. So I think after I do this big post, I'm going to be doing a book next year. And so that's going to be even a bigger one. And I think then I can see really enjoying just all the pressure off any given topic and kind of coming back and just just writing about a bunch of things again. Do
2: you think you'll be able to, because you just said you had some concerns about having to write a book and the, sort of the, it makes it, it lends to procrastination easier than blogging.
3: Yeah. I mean, that's a little, a little worrisome. On the other hand, again, the thing that it would be dangerous would be if, if I were just on my own, like on the side, working on a personal project. Okay. The book is different because there's a publishing company involved and an agent involved, gotcha. and they are not amused by you dropping the project. and And there's also readers to get back to as a blogger, and and you you don't want the, the book to just stop, you know, just just make you disappear from the world for a decade. So there is a lot of external pressure and other people involved and expectations, and that's the key.
2: Yeah. No, I totally hear you now. Do you think
3: a big part of your
2: success is this kind of minimalism? You know, you had a lot of things you're doing in your life. You decide, okay, I'm going to pick one. I'm really going to commit to it. I'm going to focus on it. You have really been improving your quality over quantity, and you're getting increasingly popular with that approach. You know, do you think that like a big part of this is kind of mastering, like, there's a beautiful simplicity to what you're doing in a way that is obviously complex, but, it, you know, it, it's still simplistic at the same time?
3: I think it, it depends. I think, you know, there's, I love Seth Godin's blog and it's kind of the opposite. It's, it's high quality, but it's also high quantity. It, it's one little thought every day. So I wouldn't want him to be doing a long article every three weeks instead of that because I like that. So I think it, it's just different formats with the quantity, the volume versus minimalism can all work for me. I like it this way because I'm kind of a perfectionist. I like to really dig in when I do it. I'm not, I don't think I'm like, Reliably productive enough to put out something every day. I think I would just, I think I, I, I actually tried that one week. I said, I'm going to do a mini week. I'm going to do a little mini post every day. And a, and a mini post would take me an hour. Yeah. But of course, I, I could, once I announced that it was a mini post and I started working on it, and it was double, you know, and then I made it a background post. And there were five pretty long posts. And it was like, it almost killed me that week. So I think I, I'm very not satisfied by writing something really, really small. I don't get a chance to dive in and really analyze it. So for me, it's better this way. But I don't think it's a rule for everyone.
2: Yeah, it's sort of like the evolutionary process like has winnowed down to your like, you've like eventually over three years, I figured out the exactly the amount of words like piece that works best for you.
3: Yeah, and it depends on the post. As I said, some, you know, that's if I'm writing about SpaceX, I want it to be 40,000 words because there's, yeah. I need to explain the entire story of space if you're going to really get it and the entire story of the, of the human, you know, the human future. If I'm writing about, you know, I don't know, cool things about your family tree, like then that's a good 3,000 word post. And so I think I'm starting to get better at figuring out the length each topic should be, you know, so yeah. Awesome.
2: No, this is this is great, great nuance here. So um, let me just dive the rest of the scenario. Let me dive into just, I picked out some topics of things that you've written about before I want to discuss with you. One I thought was a really cool post. You had people choose IQ, EQ, or grit. And I posted this on my Facebook wall, and I have lots of psychologists on my friends list. And it got into a huge discussion about, well, how do we know in that year, 2045, that the reliability and validity of the grit scales and EQ scales will match the validity and reliability of the IQ scales? That's one thing that came up. And, I mean, look, this is so nerdy. Like, you should see all... Maybe I'll even send you the link. To it. I made it public so you could see all the comments. But it's really... I mean, I had like people who are experts in the psychometrics of these topics, like having a whole discussion. You set off with this question. What, oh, are some, so what are some other things? Other things are like, well, he assumes that what the heritability coefficients are the same among these three that like, you know, oh my God. Um, what else?
3: got myself into deep waters there.
2: You did. Also, you, you put it on a zero to 100 percentile. It confused a lot of people because they're used to like IQ 70 is usually considered below average where you said it was above average. And then I had to keep reminding people, yes, but in his thought, of, but that's what happens when you post something like that too. Well, this
3: wasn't even so, so if, this were, if that were a full post. I would have, you know, I would have interviewed a couple, you know, psychologists. I would have read a couple of books, and I would have really, you know, I would probably would have been speaking the right lingo more and been talking about a lot of these things. So this was a dinner table, which was literally just a conversation I had had on text with two friends, and then I said, "Okay, this is interesting. Let me pose it to this week on Sunday." And so I just kind of like threw something out there, and I don't think it was ready for prime time on the psychology boards yet.
2: Absolutely, and it's just it's it is an interesting question for sure. I want to ask why just those three? Why didn't you include creativity, for instance? Like, why is innovation, yeah, no, why is innovation it, 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 not part
3: of that? I think creativity is a factor for sure. I, I mean, it, it's probably maybe the most important factor. But I think creativity is more like how you reason than it is an, an innate talent, actually. I really think that, like, a lot of us who feel not creative, just the fact that we are we we stopped exercising that muscle when we were, like, five because we have the creativity essentially trained out of us by school and by everyone telling us to obey and not to, you know, not to create. To, to obey, and I think creativity is just getting that kind of what like people like Elon Musk call like reasoning from first principles, like always assuming that conventional wisdom or your initial assumptions and thoughts about something may not be the best way, and that you should think about everything from a blank slate that you care a lot about. You can't do that all the time; it's not efficient. But like, so I, I think creativity is thinking. You can be thinking like that, like kind of thinking like an original. I think that you, all this creativity bursts out. So to me, I feel like. Although, you know, the problem with that is grit is also kind of like a, a nurtured, learned thing, probably much more than nature, while I feel like. Well, that's you know, not true. But a lot of people
2: think that, you know, so Angela Duckworth, who, you know, I guess you you read her book, Grit?
3: I actually haven't, but I saw her TED Talk, and I've seen her do other talks, and so, so I've, learned. I've learned a lot about it.
2: Awesome. Yeah, she's like a close colleague of mine, her office is right next door to mine. And, you know, I hear how they talk about this stuff all the time, and I mean the research actually shows that grit or conscientiousness which is it's correlated with the very highly with the personality trait conscientiousness has the same heritability coefficient as IQ both IQ and grit are about equally environmentally determined and genetically influenced I think people think it's just another personality trait in fact all of the personality traits probably have the same heritability coefficients or exact mix of both nature oh, and nurture but you do see that a lot. You see people saying that IQ is innate, whereas grit is learned,
3: and that is such an oversimplification. But you see that a lot. Yeah, I didn't really think about it that way, but I, the nature. The more I learn, the more I under, I realize that I don't really understand nature-nurture. It's not intuitive what you think. Right. Nature-nurture is just not. It's just not intuitive. And should, I think I think people yeah. attribute way more to nurture than they should. Like nurture is really a big deal, but I just continue to hear about all this stuff that is. That, that goes back to your nature. And in other ways, people can contribute too much the other way. You know, I think there are other times when things are assumed to be just who you are, when actually it was based on formative experiences. So I would need to yeah, study a lot more, read, read a bunch more, to, I think, to understand that. That would
2: make a great wait But why post.
3: <laughs> I think it would. I, 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 also, I got in big trouble from um, Adam Grant for writing that post because he's a big IQ over EQ proponent. So he, he, was, he thought I was overrating EQ and sent me some articles. To show me that too so
2: I, that's I, I, so I funny it. i was gonna send you some articles too uh about about that too
3: yeah 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 <laughs> I, I... I I think think I'll have to do a little bit more research next time before I get into those, uh, (laughs) and maybe we can talk then. Uh, Sounds
2: good. No, but it was a really interesting thought experiment. And so, yeah, I'm just basically, in this conversation, I'm just bringing up things that you really stimulated um, my thinking and I want to just discuss with you. So Uh, another thing, I'm wondering how you reconcile these two posts with each other. You wrote, Taming the Mammoth, Why You Should Stop Caring What Other People Think of You. And then you also wrote, Seven Ways to Be Insufferable on Facebook. Basically, like people who were in my view, being authentic, you kind of make fun of them in a way. So I'm wondering, you know, how those two are reconcilable with each other. I mean, the seven ways to be insufferable in Facebook post. I'm sure you read some of the comments, like you upset a lot of people with that post. And what do you think was going on? Maybe what did you trigger in them? And also, maybe you could just tell me some of the seven ways that you mentioned.
3: Right. Okay. So what I'll say about it is, I wrote The Facebook post six months before Wait But Why started, and it was the first Uh Wait But Why post at a time when I was anonymous and it was an unknown blog trying to get attention. And so there's an element there of like trying to go viral that I think made it significantly less empathetic and more kind of dickish than I normally would be. That said, there's also (laughs) I think there's a combo. I think the heart of the post. I think there's a lot of truth in the post, and I think there's also it's an overly harsh, underly empathetic take on the issue. So the mammoth post, I believe fully with my heart is the way that we should be thinking that the mammoth, which is the little character I assign to the part of our brains that thinks it's in a tribe in 50,000 BC where it absolutely must get along with people and must fit in. It must be liked. It can't be rejected. You know, it wants approval from, it wants to please the authorities, wants approval, and it can't. Stand the concept of a little click forming and talking bad, you know, talking trash about you behind your back. That's like the worst thought you can have, and it feels great on the other hand to be on the other side of that click. So that made sense at fifty thousand BC because your tribe was everything. It was your life system, support system. You needed to be in good if you wanted to ever have a mate. You wanted to survive. You wanted to have. You needed to have status in this tribe. Today, that's not the case, but the mammoth is still there. The mammoth still thinks it's 50,000 BC, and we're all kind of living with the, we're all just kind of, yeah, we're all kind of living with this influence in our head that is not actually very rational today uh, in the world that we currently live. It doesn't make much sense, but he doesn't know that. So, Facebook, I would say that part of that post was criticizing, like you said, authenticity because it's annoying or whatever. And that, that is not fair. And I don't think today I would have had that take. I might have made fun of. I might have made fun of those people a little. I've right. been those people. We all have. Right. But I, I, it, it's more like making fun of them. So I, I think I might have made fun of those people. But in terms of um, what what I would have focused on if I wrote it today is still the concept that in the real world, in an interaction, in social life, we have a lot of etiquette. You know, we have a lot of uh, norms, and some of it is unnecessary, but a lot of it is there for a pretty good reason. You know, politeness is there for a good reason, and other things. We don't. You know, we don't just openly kind of brag. And talk about ourselves for an hour straight to someone without asking any questions. That's etiquette there for a good reason. It makes us people that people want to spend time with and makes you considerate and thoughtful. On the internet, I feel like it's the Wild West of social life. It's back to that, you know, there's no etiquette yet, or at least in a lot of ways. And it, all these traits and qualities and people that would be appalling if they happened in person just kind of come out. You know, you see, obviously, there's this, the cliche kind of YouTube comment. That are just super nasty and, and insulting and personal. But then um some of the stuff I'm criticizing on Facebook, you know, is stuff like unself aware, just kind of very self absorbed, kind of narcissistic. And to me, I think a lot of it is the mammoth at his work. So I think in some ways, wow. yes. Yes, yes, I'm I'm criticizing like I in some ways I think the thing that that is hard about the post is when I'm just saying, Oh, your mammoth should care more about that. You know, okay, you're right, that I wouldn't have written today, but A lot of that post is that the mammoth is totally in charge of you when you're on Facebook, obsessing over this public image crafting, you know, this incredible image crafting that happens on Facebook. People, if you look at their photos, their profile photos, it's it's like this, you know, they spend all this time like trying to craft this thing as if they're like kind of a movie star within their friends. And it's just, to me, it is very mammoth controlled.
2: Well, where is the image crafting there? Couldn't one make the case that you're actually arguing for more image crafting? You know, let's say I read your post and I think, oh my gosh, that is all, 100% of what I do on Facebook. Now I'm going to start overthinking every post I do.
3: Isn't that image crafting though? Well, no. Uh, okay. So yeah, again, this post is, is a Jekyll and Hyde situation. So there's some parts, <laughs> there's some parts of this post where I'm criticizing perfectly fair, innocent human behavior, and I'm just kind of being like a mean person about it. And then there's other parts of this post where I would say, where it's not it's no different than if, if you have a friend who shows up at a party and just, again, spent 20 minutes talking about himself and, and then bragging and then just kind of like walks away. And afterwards, you had to talk with that friend and said, you know, you, you might want to like, you know, have a radar in your head that, you know, maybe you should ask other people questions. So, you know, it's not that people should be asking questions on Facebook, but it's the same idea of there's just some people that really rub me the wrong way. And I don't think it's because I'm being a mean person in those Moments. I think sometimes it's because I'm just like, you know, you're better than this. And we should all remember that, like, this is still human interaction. So I don't know. Again, I don't really defend that post very hard because th- yeah. th- that one was written before I was trying to really be my most authentic self as a writer. And I think, yeah. you know, it was supposed to be funny and provocative and make some good points and also kind of make some uh, controversial points. <laughs>
2: Well, we could absolutely move on. No, I appreciate that very much. And I appreciate that you uh, responded to these points. And we can move on from it. What I just think it's just, just really interesting. There's like a deeper question here that I guess I'm trying to bring up between authenticity versus image crafting. And like, what is the like optimal level of authenticity? It does seem, you know, I just feel like even you know, Facebook seems to be a place to be, to act narcissistic. Although I do think we overuse the word. Narcissism has a very clinical term to it, right? So what you're really saying is that we're acting selfish or we're not being narcissists because that, that that's a very clinical, all of us have those needs. It seems like, where can we get those needs? Where in the world can we get those needs? It seems like Facebook is a good way and hopefully a safe space to amongst your friends to get that out.
3: Absolutely. Like it's what it is. Is a lot of people treating Facebook like a safe. So again, the part of the post I wouldn't defend at all is the part that just kind of rails on people for treating it like too much of a safe space when like that's totally a fair thing to do. And to make everyone like more self-conscious about just like kind of, you know, the parts of people that are mammoth-free on Facebook, like blissfully mammoth-free for once and just kind of doing their thing. And that someone's like, you're so annoying. Why are you being like, that's like horrible advice. So yeah, definitely the safe space regard. I think Facebook is a good thing. And I don't agree with my own post on, you know, being critical of people for that.
2: No, that's cool. That, that's totally cool. I think of these individuals who are like unapologetically assholes, for instance, and they are authentically themselves. And there are a lot of people in their life, they're like, you know what, you really should tone that down or dial it down. And they seem to be like, it doesn't seem to bother them at all. I find that a
3: fascinating phenomenon as well. It's quintessentially like annoying. And I don't feel bad about criticizing, which is like humble bragging, you know, that kind of Social media. You know what humble bragging right. is? Oh, I do.
2: I, I, I've been
3: guilty yeah. of it for sure. Oh, we all have. As soon as I saw it, I said, oh, my God, I totally have it." I mean, and, and I still sometimes catch myself. And even now, a, a friend that we really um, send each other humble humblebrag when we see them, and he sometimes sends me my own. I'm like, damn it. And, you know, I'll be like, you know, it's like, like I was like I, I interviewed Elon Musk. You know, and I like instead yeah. of just being like, "Hey, I, how cool is that?" I, I was like, uh, you know, you know, I essentially kind of humble brag, basically, just like that. I was like in my pajamas walking around. I can't believe I'm talking to this guy, and I was like, "Oh God,
2: was that right? I did it." <laughs> was that a humble brag right there by even telling me that story the way you did? <laughs>
3: uh it might have been yeah it might have been so this I, one time i, I, I was I, talking to you Musk. i'm in a and... humble brag like inception right now this is a disaster but the point is that's the exact kind of thing that happens on social media that happens less in the real world and it's just it does happen in the real world too but it's like rampant on social media because we're just sometimes like a less kind of self-aware versions of ourselves like that and that i unapologetically criticize
2: i hear you man and i think like probably it's all about tone i think like you know, if you wrote the post in a way that was like more like, can we all just laugh at each other? Like, can we all just like, we're all human? You know, can we all just sort of like, you know, like, I think
3: that probably wouldn't have pissed off so many people in the comments. But um, oh, yeah. I did it today. Not only would I have been more empathetic. Yeah. But I also would have fully. At the time, I was, I was anonymous. I didn't want people to know whether I was a oh, guy or a girl, 50 years old or 20 years old. So I also didn't. Ta- and no one knew me. Yet. Now, people who read the blog know me. So I would fully, I'd be the center character. I'd be be giving examples from my own Uh, Facebook feed for each of them. And I think that would stop people. Because then I'm kind of like making fun of all of us on it versus being like, you're a loser. Why are you being like that? Like acting like some like critical dick. So, yeah, that's also something that would have been different. Awesome.
2: Okay. We can move on for this topic. Uh, I, appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate that a lot. So, wow, you covered what makes you you. I mean, you really do like the big questions. This question is something I'm, I'm utterly fascinated with too. And doing neuroscience studies and things, you're left with a profound, like, well, is that all there is to us? You know, when I look at a brain scan, you know, and it's like in my hand, I look at that. I'm like, is that, is this the person? You know, is there something else about this person? And I think it, it really is a profound question. And you, covered it from various angles, you know, the body theory, the brain theory, and then you did all these thought experiments. You talked about all these thought experiments. That, so let's talk about one of the thought experiments. Let's just pick one. How about the body scattering test? What is the body scattering test?
3: Yeah. So I think there are a lot of this from Shelley Kagan, a professor at Yale who yeah. I who just does this unbelievably interesting also course. course. On, online. Uh, I linked to it in the post. You can just go watch it yep. from your computer and it just could not have been more interesting. And so I, th- I think what you're referring to is the concept of if you actually look at what a human is, it's just a large collection, a collection of atoms and a certain arrangement. That's all it is. With a certain like amount of velocity, I guess, energy levels of each atom. And, and that's it. That together is forming you and all of your actions and behavior and thoughts, right? Or uh, supposedly. Mm-hmm. And so the body scattering test, I think, essentially says, you know, what if you had a thing that could take all those atoms and suddenly scatter them into a space? So suddenly you would just like vaporize into a you know just poof into a bunch of gas that's in the room and you wouldn't be able to see you but it's all the same atom and then you know a wizard who does that whatever and then the wizard comes back with magic wands and okay and tells the atoms back to where you were and then come back so when you're poofed out are you dead are you alive like you know are you do you exist in that moment and then when when the atoms come back and form you again is that still you that person probably would act like you that person probably would have all your memories because memories are just, you know, what your arrangement of atoms in your brain. So all of that's back and you would say, wow, that was weird. And you'd walk out and you'd head on with your day. The question is, did someone die? And now there's this new being that thinks it's you, this clone, or is that still you? And you start to just, every one of these thought experience, experiments makes you realize that it's kind of an illusion, the self in a lot of ways. And that a lot of what we think, it we think it's obvious. And then when you do these thought experiments, you start to realize that this is not obvious what the self actually is. And maybe this whole thing is kind of an illusion. So I find it endlessly fascinating. And yeah. I, I, that's, I just don't feel like I have the answer to this question. Oh,
2: man. Let me know if you do. It is a very fascinating question. And I, I found that post really did a nice summary of all, of all the different perspectives. And, you know, I had this podcast chat. Do you know David Chalmers, the philosopher of mind?
3: Yeah, yeah. I had a chance to meet him once briefly, yeah.
2: Great. We this whole he we talked about whether or not we're living in a simulation. He thinks that it's there's like 40% probable that we are potentially that we're living in a simulation. But also, you know, that like once you start uploading yourself to a computer, and let's say you start uploading your entire memories, everything to the <laughs> computer, and you lose everything you have as soon as it gets onto the computer. At what point, where is that demarcation point where you're no longer you anymore? You know, what is it we were talking, we're doing like, what is it when it's, if it's
3: 50-50, you know, like 50% you, 50% in the computer, you know, like which one is you and... um, Right. Or like if you replace, you know, each part of your body one by one, you know, when you hit the point where you're now just not you anymore, you replace every brain cell one by one with someone else's, you know, when does it change over? The thing that is the most crazy to me of all of these things is the fact that someone can damage their brain and lose half of their brain and still be themselves and living and okay. That, yeah. There are examples of this. When the other half of your brain compensates and starts doing a lot of the functions of the other half and the missing half, and that the person is still them, they have their memories, they still have their personality, and they are living an okay life. This happens. So, so now it, it, that makes me think, okay, so what if you removed someone, half of someone's brain They were still themselves and somehow you could remove an entire person's brain a person's entire brain and put the other half of person a's brain into person b so now they both have you know person a has the left half of his original brain and person b now has the right half of person a's brain as his only brain are they clones like and so if that were my friend who suddenly had the other half of my brain i'm like oh no He would like know everything I think about him and about everything else. And then I'm like, but it's not him. He's me. He is me now. It's super
2: weird to me. I could see how that could be super weird for sure. This is how I like to think of it. You know, the the self is an illusion. I mean, it's all an illusion, really. Like technically, if you look at like, I have no atoms in common when I was six years old. Right. I actually am like there is a version of me that is actually dead forever you know right. like and i'm not mourning that 6 year old you're
3: you're a lot closer to being me than you are to being your 5 year old self absolutely absolutely
2: yeah. and so really all i mean our whole sense and construction of self is all an illusion so that we don't go crazy <laughs> that we keep some sort of continuity there and you do talk about continuity there at the end so that is a, a really neat way of tiding it, but it seems like, you know, all the research and I, I can send you some papers on this showing that the thing that seems to most make us feel like ourself, when we, even when we get dementia, even when we start losing our memories, even if we lose our IQ, you know, our IQ lowers, the one thing that seems if we lose that, we seem to lose our sense of self is our morality. Oh, interesting. And yeah, oh. they've done this, you know, I don't know if you've heard of the group, they're experimental philosophers. So they try to actually test philosophical theories experimentally and they did this study on people's you know a whole list of all the things that yeah it'd, it'd be okay to lose this it'd be okay to like I, if i lost this i wouldn't lose my sense of self it really was the sense of right once we start losing and doing things like let's say we impulsively start doing things that go against our value system that cuts at the core to us of what it means to feel like we're unique in this world is really our values
3: really our values uh, yeah i'd yeah, love to see that paper for sure I feel like sense of humor, like some core personality things that you know, kind of. Without that, you're just not you. I think there's other things that strike me as as candidates, but I'm sure you get people have thought a lot more about this, and that's what they've come to. That's really interesting.
2: Yeah, I'd love to send you the the paper. Yeah, please um, do. So I'm I'm thinking about this really interesting idea that you just proposed about the left and so on in the right, different in the right hemisphere. I mean, in a lot of ways, we do have lots of different people in our body competing with each other. I mean, we do have sides right. of ourselves that eat the ice cream and then we have the other side that like doesn't you know that's like oh i hate the person who just ate that ice cream
3: that's true that's true but there still seems to be some inner sense consciousness behind all of those things that is the real you and that's the thing that i can't pin down (laughs) you know to any physical system or you know i can't figure out where that is and how you lose it or how you preserve it
2: yeah it, it is a for mystery
3: for example yeah. like you know the teletransporter experiment okay i won't get into it now but like the end of the experiment you know it's like again it's or, or the scatter experiment like the person walks out to your friends and family nothing bad happens you're still there you're fine they don't care you're still you in every way that you can be you as far as they're concerned but if you but if i'm about to be the one who's vaporized and then put back together it's critically important to me to know whether the first person actually just disappears. Now there's just a new person <laughs> yeah. because that means I die. And there's essentially someone made a clone that is going on. Who cares? I'm dead. Who cares? And it's like, it suddenly it's like, wait, I need to know that. And your friends and family, they just see, you know, you walk out, you're like, wow, that was super weird. Yeah. I don't know, like that. Was... And they just think that you're still there. So what's the difference for them versus for you? You know, what is that inner, like I, there's like this eye that needs to be behind the eyes looking out at the, of the new person. I need to have access to the consciousness of the new person. And that's this thing that I can't pin down. I can't figure out why that would or would not be there, you know?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And 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 there really, there is no one in this world has like the answer. And it, but I
3: feel like a smarter species, you know, even us in uh-huh. 50 years, we might. Like that, that doesn't seem like, it oh. seems like something that it's like Aristotle, you know, thought that your intelligence is located in, in your heart. Like it seems so crazy, but like, we just don't know stuff until we know it, and so I can see them looking back and thinking, "Wow, they really didn't get what consciousness was back in the two, you know the 21st century."
2: Well, this is the you know hard for soft problem distinction. People are, are quite confident in my field that in 50 years we will have mapped out the brain, you know, and we will have. So even if we find out in 50 years exactly what the neural correlates of consciousness are, some people are skeptical that we'll ever learn the hard problem. So that was the easy problem, you know. The hard problem is knowing, you know. What is explaining qualia? Explaining where does your own unique experience of being Tim Urban, you know, what gives rise to that? I mean, man. But maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. Maybe we'll we'll figure it out someday. And you start thinking about, like, yeah, like, what does it mean? Like, what dies when we die? You know, like, what dies? Like, well, what dies is the construction of our sense of self. You know, a lot of things that are very selfish.
3: And if you get to the highest Buddhist level, you start to get that. You're like, oh, no, you know, this is not something to be, like, upset about. It just is. That's okay. Yeah. Really cool. That's a pretty hard place to get, yeah. Really cool conversation. I really want to be
2: respectful of your time. I thought I would end this conversation talking about, I know you've thought about a lot lot about cryonics. Yeah. And uh, it's something I've thought a lot about too. And when I read your article, I was like, it really helped consolidate a lot of things for me. And so first of all, thank you for writing that article, being so brave. um, I know it's a bit of a controversial topic. I know that Alcor probably loves you (laughs) after writing that
3: Yeah, they did say they got a bunch of signups, which is awesome. Now, have you, so are you signed, do you have the bracelet now? No, I'm actually – I'm, I'm one out of New York state blood test short of getting the insurance in place that will officially sign me up. But I'm as close as I can be right now. I'm all ready to go. So don't so die. Don't lo- die. Yeah, I'll be good to die in about two months. But yeah, I'm, I'm almost there, yeah.
2: So David Chalmers and I in the podcast, we were joking about how we, we want to get chirogetically preserved in the same cubicle.
3: Yeah, I I was thinking that too. You want people to, like the right kind of people to hang out with. It could be a long time you're in there. Exactly.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And also our, it's something that I would um definitely considering. It makes a, your article argues it makes a lot of sense, but your article does have one really big assumption. And that's that there's no afterlife, no spiritual religious afterlife. Now, let's do the thought experiment here for a second. What if your atheist inclinations are wrong and there actually is an afterlife and then so you die and you go to this amazing afterlife, and then they resurrect you 30,000 years, and you leave into this horrible world. Wouldn't you be like, darn it, that really sucks. But then you just jump off a bridge and go back. Oh, I see, because you know the truth. So you right. could just go back. But yeah. Okay, okay. That's good, good. That's actually a good answer. I
3: mean, the truth is, a world with an afterlife is so magical <laughs> and different than the world that I think it is, Yeah. that at that point, I feel like, yeah, you can just use magic to get back there. I mean, that, you know, yeah. What if it confuses
2: the afterlife system in a way that, like, what if there was something, look, I'm totally just being out there right now. I'm not, but I'm just trying, I want to think this all through. Let's just think this through, like, really think this through. Like, what if, like, things are meant to be, like, things have been, have happened a certain way for the the whole existence of organic species. And we're kind of playing, messing with that a little bit. What if we are in a simulation? Like Dave Chalmers said, it's 40% probability or so. What if like, you know, that really, isn't that really going to piss off the
3: programmers or something? But would they be pissed off if you went in, if someone, if right now someone went into a coma and instead of just having the do not resuscitate order, they fought through. And then the, uh, two years later, the doctors revived them and they were back. Would that, would that mess okay. up their afterlife? Would that... Because the idea with uh, cryonics is that yeah. you're not even dead yet, that you're actually just, they're going to basically preserve you in a, you know, something you can compare to a coma intentionally to keep you alive until a future hospital can cure you. All that's doing is just, it's the same thing as fighting through cancer. It's fighting through disease to try to preserve your life. If you think about it that way, it doesn't really conflict with anything. It's, it's no different than long-term patient care.
2: Long-term patient care. I love that point in the article. I actually, yeah. I absolutely love that article. I'm thinking of like free will here. Like, if it was in our destiny, you know, when the Big Bang happened, that we would get into a coma. Okay, so maybe even figure out cryogenically preserve yourself. Maybe that's part of free will. That maybe that's just part. Yeah, of Yeah, it's no well. different than
3: it's. It okay. might be. It might be determined from the Big Bang that you were going to get cancer, and it's also determined that you were going to fight through it. Just like you determined you're going to fight through. It's all about your definition of death. You know, cryonists say, "Okay, well, what is death? If if, if life is just this arrangement of atoms that makes you in your brain that makes you you, then." Death is when those atoms are so irreparably scattered that there's no way for any future technology or any future intelligence to figure out how they once were. And once, and I call that info death. And that's when you're really truly gone. There's nothing they can ever get you back. Right. Until then, they see you as a hard drive, which a really smart species or a smart AI could uh, recover. And if they can recover you, they don't consider you dead in the first place. So th- that's when you get to get to, okay, well, if there's afterlife, what is the moment that the afterlife con- considers you? dead. Right. That's you know? a good question. It, you know, it's, it's, it's not, look, 50 years ago, that, that answer was, oh, your heart stops beating and you stop breathing. That was, someone was declared dead on that moment. Actually, now they're not. They're resuscitated often. If it's, if it's within five minutes of that, they're fine or they can be fine. And so someone 50 years ago would say, don't resuscitate me. That's going to mess with my afterlife. But now no one thinks that. We redefine death. So when you start thinking about what death actually means and how it's shifted over the years and how this is just another shift, It becomes a lot less controversial, I think. I think it becomes no different than rushing you across the town to a hospital that has the tools to save you. This is rushing you you to the future, to a hospital that can save you. And I think that, you know, right now it's still in this zone where people think of it as vain and, you know, and kind of selfish to want to live forever. You know, it's this kind of, but it's not wanting to live forever. It's wanting to live longer. Yeah. it's, It's no different than when people had a lifespan of 40 on average, you know, fighting to try to make it eighty. Well chronic's just try fighting to make it even longer and preserve people. It's just that it, it's there's nothing vain about that any more than fighting cancer is the, I think it reframing to understand that. But once you get it, it doesn't really make sense to not, I think, be in favor of
2: I, I completely agree. And and the things I'm putting forward are not vanity issues. They're like, yeah. let's just really think this through. Right? Like what if I did think you really thought it through, but I'm just adding additional things, like because this is just fun to talk about. I mean, you're taking the risk as well that you're going to actually prefer the world you wake up in to death. I mean, who knows? Like, this could be like we could wake up in a just terrible torture, like in a zoo or something. Or yeah, a zoo.
3: you know. I, okay, so on one hand, people are like, "Oh, you wake up and you know when you know there, and it's a dystopian future." Okay, well then I just kill myself. Uh, so that doesn't work. But when you got to at the end there. It is a little worrisome. Where yeah, they can't. Well, they so, won't let you kill yourself. Or it's even more because. I don't think a more advanced species is going to be more medieval than we are. I think they're going to have anything going to be even you know more based on human rights and and all of that. So I'm not really worried about the species so much. It's more of like some sick fuck buys one of these facilities right. and is like right. I'm gonna, these are these are going to be. I'm going to see how much suffering and pain yeah. human consciousness can endure by bringing and how much fear what can happen. I'm they're going to use it as tests. That is an unfortunate possibility that if you just die normally there's no way that's going to happen right someone else uh, i don't know if you know julia Galef, but she, she talked about it, and she said that you know what if somehow we don't understand consciousness yeah and once you get you know you get preserved you're actually your consciousness revives and you're just stuck in it for a thousand years in this nitrogen not able to say anything and that to me now we get the same question as the afterlife where now i'm saying well that's now we're in magic land because consciousness requires biological activity, right? I mean, yeah. it has to, it can't, it, it can't, thinking can't occur without biological, life. so that answer in the afterlife thing don't bother me as nearly as much as, you know, and nor does waking up and not knowing anyone. Well, okay, I can always die, but like, if people lose their family now, they, they don't want to, they might want to, but they don't usually kill themselves. They They try to get back on their feet, then they make new yeah. friends, and then they get married, and then suddenly they love their life again. So, that doesn't work for me. It's really just this lone sick fuck idea that I yeah. really don't like. That good. I'm not in. Good,
2: good. We've really narrowed it down to our biggest concern. This is why these kinds of thought experiments are good.
3: i um, still probably gonna do it though because, yeah. look, the, the upside, I mean, if you just revive, don't bet against the future. You know, the past would never have imagined the kind of thing we could do now. So the future might really be able to bring that back consciousness and say, yeah, that's not even hard. It's like we, we very much understand human brain, human consciousness. We can look at this <laughs> chronically preserved brain and we can very easily bring back this person with a new fresh body and they can live for hundreds of years and enjoy things that's not that insane when you think about what the brain is just a physical object and the future is going to be very 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 impressive probably to us shockingly mind-bogglingly impressive so i'm like yeah i'll throw my vitrified brain to those people and say see what you can do
2: yeah even elon musk i know i know how much you admire him Uh, i saw him give a talk at the world government summit last uh, a couple weeks ago and and they were like, kept asking, him, what do you think the future is going to be? With you know, he's like, well, the immediate, you know, future I see like self driving cars is going to be a big thing, blah, blah. But he said, honestly, I got no idea. Like, you know, he's like, he's like, if you asked them 100 years ago to predict any of the shit we're having now, like, even the smartest yeah. people of that generation would have been like, not have got nailed this stuff. So he said, the only thing I could predict is it's going to be something we have no idea. Yeah, that's right. I, I thought that was a really cool answer. It's exciting. Yeah, it's really exciting. And I found this uh, conversation exciting as well, Tim. Thanks a lot for chatting with me and for the great work
3: you do. Oh, thanks so much. Great talking to you.
2: Thanks for listening to The Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. I hope you found this episode just as thought-provoking and interesting as I did. If you'd like to read the show notes for this episode or hear past episodes, you can visit thepsychologypodcast.com. Good evening.
0: Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey,
1: girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared.